This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just this week, Facebook and its family of apps, including Instagram and WhatsApp, were all inaccessible for many hours on Monday, October 4th, taking out a vital communications platform used by nearly 3.5 billion users across the world. So in this week's episode, we're delighted to be joined by Mark Leonard. He's the author of The Age of Unpeace, Why Connectivity Causes Conflict. And he talks to Carl Miller about how greater connectivity and globalization could be leading to far more problems than it's solving. We hope you enjoy it, and if you do, you can find a link for the book in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Hi, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Carl Miller. I am delighted today to welcome our guest, Mark Leonard. Mark is the founder and director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, where he chairs a council of 300 European leaders, including serving and former presidents, prime ministers, and foreign ministers. And he's also the author of the new book, The Age of Unpeace, how Connectivity Causes Conflict. Mark, hello there. Hi, Carl. It's great to be with you. Great to see you again, Mark. So let's begin um, by kind of situating ourselves in the kind of aftermath of this chaotic withdrawal of the United States and its allies from Afghanistan. Um, in a recent piece, you wrote that the West, who are t- those in the West who are attacking Biden's policy there, um, are kind of gripped by this unshakable nostalgia for a bygone era and upset about the return of brutal geopolitical competition. Why don't we begin by you introducing that idea and, and what was underlying it? Sure. So I, I think that a lot of people were very upset about the way that people were being, you know, cut, literally cast off airplanes, um, women and children who had been born into Afghanistan, seeing their life chances shrinking. And there was a sort of brutality about it. But as well as the, the human rights of the Afghans who were left behind, I think there was something else that people felt was maybe being left behind in Hamid Karzai International Airport. And that was the dream of uh, of uh, liberal international order where the West would uh, spread democracy and human rights and where increasingly we would find that a globalized world would hang together and conflict between countries would be replaced by trade, that you would get much wider horizons of empathy through the internet, people understanding about what's going on with different players and a coming together of the world to solve the the big global problems, whether it's climate change or pandemics. And in fact, in many ways, the Afghan mission was the the sort of last remnant <laughs> of that dream. And uh, when the troops left Afghanistan, what one could see is that though we were meant to be ending the, the, the forever wars, uh, it wasn't peace that was going to come in its wake. Instead, 
it was a much more brutal competition between China and America, where a lot of the hopes about the internet, about free trade, about all the things that are meant to be bringing us together have been dashed. And in many ways, the reason why Biden was so desperate to get out of Afghanistan is so that he could take the effort that had gone into the war on terror, into uh, liberal internationalism in the past, and, and put it now into uh, a conflict with China, which is becoming increasingly central to American foreign policy. So we'll get on to the conflict in a second, because I know that's a very imp- important part of your thesis. But but just to kind of dwell on on this moment then that we're living in now for, for one more moment, this the kind of end of... The, the, the Afghan withdrawal, like, so to your mind, is this also marking the end point of this kind of age of liberal triumphalism, of kind of um, globalisation? I don't think globalisation is going to disappear, but the way that we think about globalisation is changing. So my sort of starting point for writing this book was that I am somebody whose life has been hugely enhanced as a result of uh, globalization and connectivity, my life chances, my job, um, the quality of of the food that I can eat and the stuff I can buy in the supermarkets, the sort of staff I can um, hire. So in a way, you know, I come from a background of German Jews. My father was, was, was evacuated in the second world war on the, on my kind of English side. So, you know, my, life feels a lot more secure and full of opportunity than my parents or grandparents. But what I realized in uh, 2016 after the Brexit referendum when Trump was elected was that a large number of people see globalization and connectivity bringing, um, making their lives less safe and making them feel more vulnerable and more kind of uh, unhappy. And the that that's both true in the level of the individual, but also at a sort of global level where people are pushing back against um, uh, globalization. Nationalism is rife. Um, people uh, are desperate to, to regain control over what's happening uh, in the world. And I think that, um, uh, you know, this is not a, an entirely new phenomenon, but I do think that the the end of the Afghan mission is maybe uh, a kind of historical caesura where we move firmly from one era into another. And and it's a deliberate one. That's why I was saying that Biden was desperate to get out of Afghanistan because he thinks that in the future, geopolitics is not going to be so much about the war on terror or sending troops to distant parts of the world to to fight against the, the Taliban. But it's more about who controls globalization and and the big flows in our world, whether it's trade or finance or the internet or information or the movement of people. And these things are increasingly being turned into currencies of power and even turned into weapons. And that is uh, the big change. Globalization isn't disappearing, but it used to be seen as something that was going to bring us together. Now it's seen as something which uh, is allowing countries to to inflict harm and suffering on each other or to to to, to compete for, for glory and, and power. So let, let's, let's talk about, Mark, the, the kind of drivers of this insecurity. Tell us a bit about unpeace, this, this rather particular word, I think, that you've deliberately chosen as a way of describing the kind of state that we're living in now. So I argue that um, connectivity, the, the kind of ties that bind us together, um, also uh, are driving us apart and creating... Uh, 
a set of, of reasons why there's conflict between people and why they're, they're, they're suspicious of each other. Um, you've written a lot about this as well, Carl, but the way that it leads to polarization in our societies, an epidemic of envy as people compare themselves to sometimes fictionalized ideas of how other people live and, and a kind of overwhelming loss of control. And that is creating reasons why people can conflict with each other. But even more important than that, is creating new weapons which countries are using to, to fight each other. And rather, because we've got to a stage where conventional war between great powers is almost unthinkably awful with nuclear weapons, it, it, you know, it could destroy the whole planet. So people are thinking about ways of uh, competing with each other which fall short of conventional war. And increasingly, that is by manipulating uh, the ties that bind us together. And I, I compare geopolitics to a, a loveless marriage that's going wrong. It's the very things that bring the couple together in the good times that become the ways that they try and hurt each other in the bad times. So in a marriage, you know, it's about who gets custody of of, of the, the dog and the holiday home and the children. Um, but in geopolitics, it's more about trade, finance, the internet, or um, global problems like climate change and pandemics, which countries are manipulating to hurt each other. But um, we haven't really realized that because we got a very old-fashioned idea of 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 what uh war is and what violence is wars are things which are declared between different countries they start with a kind of declaration of war they're fought by people in uniform they end with a peace treaty um so according to those sorts of uh definitions we live in this golden era of peace many more people get killed in fact die through suicide every year than die through uh, through armed conflict um i mean it's a tragedy every single death but only seventy thousand people a year are being killed in different armed conflicts around the world on average whereas um hundreds of millions of people are affected by these connectivity conflicts that i was talking about um but they they don't they aren't um uh, visible to us. There aren't body bags coming back. There aren't uh, dramatic videos which we can share on social media. So people uh, don't really recognize this is going on. And I took this term which academics have used to describe what's happening in the cyber realm. It's an old Anglo-Saxon word, um, which is unpeace, um, which I think is a great way of describing this sort of liminal condition that we live in, where on the one hand, you don't have conventional war, but at the same time, it's hard to say that we're living in a golden age of peace when um, there are millions of people being uh, losing their jobs, being killed, suffering kind of uh, violence of different types all over the world um, every year. And uh, I think it's a, a very good way of, of sort of understanding the, the era that we're in where many of the things which were thought of as opportunities now suddenly feel uh, quite scary and quite risky. And uh, the levels of anxiety uh, that you that many people feel around the world, I think are linked to this new geopolitical condition of unpeace. So in, in the absence then, Mark, of, of the kind of body bag, so to speak, or kind of, you know, people dying in armed conflict, what would you say are the, the kind of principal casualties of a condition of unpeace? I mean, are we talking about rather more amorphous conditions like a kind of draining of trust in our kind of democratic institutions or are we are we actually talking about say kind of violence and 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 impacts on people's lives and prosperity and things like that yeah i mean i i think both but you know if you just take the, a few news stories from the last couple of years um which kind of show how this manifests itself 
Um, so, the, you know, the most obvious thing, thing which we've all been obsessing about was was COVID and the pandemic. And you'd have thought that this would be the sort of classic event that would bring the world together, unite humanity against uh, against the virus. But instead, what we've seen increasingly is is mass diplomacy, vaccine nationalism, countries hoarding uh, PPE and, and equipment and using the, uh, their stocks of it to bully and blackmail other countries. Um, another kind of example of, um, of of connectivity being weaponized is um, when the Black Lives Matter protests broke out in, in the US, there was a sort of outpouring of, of support from across Africa and lots of people were calling on, on uh, people to attack the fascist police. It turned out afterwards that uh, the source of these tweets were troll factories in Ghana and Nigeria that were funded by the Russian secret services. Um, another example uh, last year as well was um, it, Iran captured a Korean um, tanker in the, in the Persian Gulf um, and was basically trying to, 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 to drive up energy prices and to uh, scare countries um, that were uh, supporting the financial stranglehold that the US had imposed on uh, on it. Uh, and that's a very interesting example where on the one hand, you know, uh, people have said that the thousands of, of Iranians are dying every year because of the economic damage which the, the san- American sanctions have, have, have inflicted on, on Iran. Iran's been literally um, amputated from the global financial system. When I go to Iran, I can't ever buy anything <laughs> because you're not allowed to use credit cards there. And, you know, it's quite complicated um, uh, uh, seeing how a country can operate when it's been cut, shut out of the system. And Iran basically reciprocates by capturing tankers, launching cyber attacks on on, on Saudi companies and other types of things. Another example is, um, anyway, we could, we could go on, but... Um, the the fight over um, over five G, which led the U.S. to put Huawei and other uh, Chinese companies on a banned list. You know, you have this situation where you have the you know Huawei and Google, uh, the two biggest uh, the biggest handset maker in the world, the biggest uh, platform operator, working together for ages, and then because of these sanctions. Um, Huawei gets kicked, uh, is not allowed to to download um, uh, the latest versions of Android onto its telephone. So you you kind of see how, um, so the the, the the kind of collateral damage which I've described there from all these different types of things. And one final example, which is maybe even more shocking, uh, just the last few weeks is in Belarus, for example, uh, President Lukashenko has been encouraging um uh, people to come from Afghanistan and Iraq into um, into uh, Belarus and then opening the borders and pushing them into into Poland and Lithuania because he knows that people are terrified about uh, migration and refugees coming into those countries and he, he wants to do that to push back against some of the the measures that Poland and Lithuania have taken against um, his his crackdown on democracy in his own country so what you're seeing is in a way all the big things which are meant to be driving us together trade the internet infrastructure um, the free movement of people being going from being sources of harmony to, to things which uh, are tools to hurt one another. And they're costing um, every year 
um, you know, thousands of, of lives through some of these different sanctions regimes. No one's looked at it in a systematic terms, but people have fe- seen the hundreds of thousands of people have died in places like uh, Iraq, in uh, North Korea, in Venezuela, a lot of countries that have been subject to, to these sorts of sanctions. Many people have lost their jobs as a result of some of these tech um, uh, uh, rules which have been put in and, 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 and financial sanctions. Um, you know, a, a billion um, uh, people live in countries where elections have been hacked over the last few years with, with misinformation campaigns. Um, uh, and um, uh, it both leads to that sort of sense of anxiety that you describe, but it is actually also just killing and, and hurting the livelihoods of many more people than terrorism or uh you know or war every year i mean that's that's a really kind of startling and 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 horrible realization isn't it that the kind of links between us are being used to hurt us rather than rather than help us Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv i'd like to talk about your kind of journey to that realization just for a moment because because i hope i don't speak out of turn mark when i say that that you much like me you know we don't come from a political tradition which typically is being hostile to the idea of of globalization or the creation of those very links in fact rather the opposite um what has how how long has this journey been for you when 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 was this kind of realization beginning to dawn and and how painful has it been i think to to reach a point so 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 very much diametrically opposed to to one that perhaps you and i held a decade ago yeah i mean it's been you know a journey which is punctuated by various disappointments over the last 20 years so the iraq war kind of changes you know i was i was very much a believer in humanitarian intervention in the balkans in the 90s and what happened in kosovo so on the military side you know iraq war and libya and what happened in afghanistan kind of tempered my my faith in that the global financial crisis um showed the extent to which that um, capitalism uh, um, uh, was, uh, you know, creating losers as well as winners across the world. And, and that was a kind of powerful wake up call. But the most sort of powerful um, event for me was the the Brexit referendum in 2016, where I spent a lot of time talking to people around the country uh, during the in the run up to the Brexit referendum and then in the aftermath um, and realized just how differently many people had experienced the last few decades from me. And I kind of knew that intellectually, but what was a real shock was that 
so many of the things that in my own life had brought joy and a sense of opportunity and freedom um, had had the exact op- opposite effect on other people. And it re- made me realize that one of the, the biggest problems of, of globalists and internationalists is in fact that we often have not actually found the right ways for measuring what was going on in the world. So if you look at the sort of aggregate figures for, for well-being in the UK since we joined the European Union every year, being part of the EU has grown our economy. Freedom of movement has been an enormous economic boon <laughs> for the economy. But hidden beneath those headline goals is the fact that there are winners and losers and that the gains haven't been uh, spread equally. And there are many people for whom freedom of movement was something that that made them feel very uneasy about their jobs being taken by other people, about wages being driven down in their part of the country. You had a lot of people who moved into neighborhoods uh, and nobody was tracking it. So they didn't make sure that there was more money to pay for doctors and nurses and for, for school places in those places. So it put pressure on public services. Um, you know, these are all things that could have been much better managed. But actually, interestingly, the people who are in favor of, of being in the European Union, in favor of globalization, were not even that interested in in measuring these things and didn't find out ways of, of actually helping the people who were losing out from them. And as a result, you had a large number of people who felt that they were becoming strangers in their own country, that they were being left behind. And, you know, when you start looking at... Uh, other developed countries, you can see exactly the same dynamics taking place, whether it's Trump's election in the United States, whether it's what's happened in Poland with the Law and Justice Party, whether it's um, uh, the dynamics in France, where people talk about France périphérique, where, you know, you have this kind of two Frances, metropolitan France and and, and the periphery that feels like it's been left behind and is sort of angry. Um, and so... That forced me to to look again at how a lot of these things were were playing out. And when I first started writing the book, I thought I was going to write a, a passionate defense of uh, of an open world because a lot of my friends were kind of arguing, you know, our political moment is a fight between open and closed societies. We need to to defeat Trump, take down Facebook. <laughs> push back against um, against populism in different places. But what I realized. Uh, as I kind of studied it more deeply was that it's almost impossible to disentangle the things that I've loved about the last 30 years from the things that other people have hated. They are kind of two sides of the same coin. You can't have the good things without the bad things. So therefore we need to understand connectivity as a, as a double-edged sword. And we need to try and see whether there are ways of, of making it less risky and less harmful and that led me to, to think that the big divide is not so much between open and closed. It's more between managed and unmanaged uh, connectivity. But also, rather than thinking about kind of grand new architectures like people did at other historical moments after the Great Depression, after the First World War, after the Second World War, maybe what we need to do is to look for other places. And the, the, the kind of strange surprising place I landed was was in the self-help section of a, of a bookshop in in. Beijing, where I read this book called uh, Facing uh, Codependence, which kind of 
described a lot of the problems of interdependence, what happens when relationships go wrong, where you uh, love somebody, uh, but it's toxic and you can't sort of get out of it. Um, and I found that a lot of the descriptions of that were, were very, very resonant if you wanted to understand geopolitics at the moment. And that the solutions as well, actually, um, are more likely to come from, from therapy probably than from, from kind of new grand architectural designs because they're about how you manage difficult relationships rather than uh, building a new world order. And I think that that was quite a profound uh, sort of intellectual awakening for me so let's devote the, the final five minutes to, to that therapy uh mark so um, i i so what i don't think you're arguing is that we reverse or get rid of those links is that right so, so you're not saying we, we 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 plummet ourselves back into an unlinked world we're not going to become north korea um, we're not going to become North Korea. We can't wind our economy back and we can't get rid of Facebook or social media. So so given that those links exist, and I suppose also given those links, you know, um, create and 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 uh, pass through them like an enormous amount of 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 benefit and value as well as harm. Um, how do we manage all of that? And I guess like, can we can we begin quite small? So so for people listening to this and I, I know lots of people listen to this. And, and, and to other intelligence squared podcasts in the past will be carrying lots of concerns around the role of, say, social media and technology in their lives and the fact that they need it. And but the fact that they also think it's, you know, extremely toxic. That's exactly that kind of relationship you just you, you found in that in that self-help book in, in Beijing. What do people do? What do they do with this with this toxic relationship they just can't get rid of? Well, I think. First thing you need to do is to face up to the problem and 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 and, and recognize it and um when you do that then you can actually instead of saying we're all winners this is all good you can actually start looking at the real problems and once you understand the problems you can sort of start fixing them and the 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 first kind of uh instinct i think has to be to look at uh, where uh, it becomes toxic and where it's hurting people and see if there are ways of taking the sting out of it and kind of disarming it and that's often going to be through establishing healthy boundaries because if you don't have healthy boundaries then you end up with people wanting to build walls and and that is uh, much more uh, damaging so paradoxically you need to give people enough distance to make them feel safe and in control and that means different things in different areas in our own life there are all sorts of ideas of digital minimalism and how you manage your your social media work but uh, in public policy, it's, it's, you know, if you're thinking about trade regimes, how do you have a kind of trade regime which gives you uh, the advantages of economies of scale and allow, allows you to, to, to benefit from, from um, uh, you know, the best technologies in the world, but without uh, taking away democratic control from our societies? Um, so it's putting limits on, on it. You know, we don't want chlorinated chickens. We don't want to destroy the National Health Service. So you think about how you... Uh, have trade regimes which which protect democracy and protect people's voice. Um, when it comes to immigration, it's the same sort of thing. How do you make sure that you can benefit from, uh, you know, our economies need people to come in from other countries. They bring their own ideas. They do a lot of work. But at the same time, um, if you are not managing it, it can create total chaos. So it's worth noting where people go, make sure that uh, it doesn't drive up house prices, that there are enough doctors and nurses and school places for people where where, where they go into, that you protect wages 
um, uh, that you invest in education so that, that local people are competitive, but it's sort of thinking about having a more balanced thing. And also the cultural side of that, how, you know, how do you have an integration policy that will work and protect people's sense of, of the core values of our societies? Um, and, you know, when it comes to regulating technology, you have sort of similar ideas of, of um, you know, people are talking about ways of regulating artificial intelligence. Do we need a kind of Magna Carta for, for AI and things like that? But I think those are the sorts of things which can establish some boundaries, which can make it feel a bit safer. I think the sort of third thing which you need to do is to understand that you can't control everything. Um, and therefore try and create a space where um, you can control the things that are most important to you, but don't get too stressed about one of the, the problems with the, the kind of universalist age that we started with is that we thought we could rewire the Chinese political system. And we got very upset about everything that happens in China that we can't control. But if we can create a space for, for sort of liberal democracy and the values that we care about within our own countries, within Europe, then that is maybe more realistic. And that leads a bit to the kind of fourth step, which is, which is the idea of self-care. You know, I think there are all sorts of reasons to worry about other people manipulating our democracy um, and weaponizing the global economy against us. But ultimately, the biggest threat to, to open societies and to liberal democracy comes from uh, domestic failure and a sense that, that our politics isn't delivering for people. So the starting point has to be to, to rewire our education system, our welfare system, our healthcare system, so that people feel kind of happy and safe. And then that will make them more relaxed about how to interact with, with other people. Um, and the final step, I think, which is which uh, of my therapy is the idea of, of seeking real consent, because I think that is um, the core to all relationships that work is that they have to be based on consent. And in a way, that's the most difficult thing, because the choice that we're often presented is, is where you started with as if, you know, we had to choose to either go back to the Stone Ages or have all the horrible things about connectivity. And what we need to do is to, to try and find ways of actually uh, giving people some say about how uh, connectivity is governed, how we, our relationships with other countries work. Um, and that means a big rewiring of our democratic systems. It's very hard because, you know, on paper, most of the things that we I've talked about, which people hated in the end, were based on consent. We had a referendum before we joined the European Union. British governments passed all the all the laws which um, uh, which led to Brexit. So, and, you know, people say that there was a democratic deficit, but actually, on paper, everything was was voted for by different people. But in practice, a large number of people felt that their voice hadn't been heard, and that's why they were so passionate about voting for Brexit um, when the chance presented itself to them. Um, and that, I think, is, is a, a real challenge to us in a, in a connected world with social media, with the internet, where you have enormous polarization of our societies. How can you go about getting people to, uh, to, to agree to things and to, to consent to the links that, that, that we face? But I, I think that is, um, it's not, 
impossible to do. There are lots of examples of countries coming up with, with different ways of doing it. And that has to be um, one of the big challenges of our age. Well, Mark, I for one love your wonderfully novel blend of uh, relationship advice and, and kind of grand uh, geopolitical vision. Thanks everyone for listening. Mark's book is The Age of Unpeace, How Connectivity Causes Conflict. I'm Kamala and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared.